Section 89, Introduction. Section 89 was received on February the 27th, 1833, and came as a direct result of a complaint from the prophet's wife. Brigham Young was not present when this revelation was given, but he says he was well acquainted with the circumstances. Joseph had started the school of the prophets, and it was being held in a room situated over the prophet Joseph's kitchen in a house that belonged to Bishop Whitney and which was attached to his store. Over this kitchen was situated the room in which the prophet received revelations and in which he instructed the brethren. The brethren came to that place for hundreds of miles to attend a school in a little room probably no larger than 11 by 14. Quote, when they assembled in this room after breakfast, the first thing they did was to light up their pipes and while smoking talk about the great things of the kingdom and spit all over the room. And as soon as the pipe was out of their mouths, a large chew of tobacco would then be taken. This and the complaints of his wife at having to clean so filthy a floor made the prophet think upon the matter, and he inquired of the Lord. The word of wisdom was the result of his inquiry. Unquote. This is Journal of Discourses, volume 12, page 158. Now we come to the text of section 89. A word of wisdom for the benefit of the Council of High Priests assembled in Kirtland, and the church, and also the saints in Zion, to be sent greeting. Notice that the Lord designates this revelation as a, quote, word of wisdom, unquote. This revelation was given to the people during very harsh critical times. The frontier was not a place of refined habits and gentle ways, but it was gradually laying the foundation for the restoration of the kingdom of God. Notice the firm but gentle way this new pattern of life was commended to the people of the Lord. He said it was being given, not by commandment or constraint, but by revelation and the word of wisdom, showing forth the order and will of God in the temporal salvation of all saints in the last days, given for a principle with promise, adapted to the capacity of the weak, and the weakest of all saints, who are or can be called saints. It would take several decades to lay a solid foundation and acceptance of all these principles, but once the entire membership of the church had subscribed to these ideals, they proved tremendously valuable to the health and general well-being of the people. Behold, verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. It is important to remember that the part of the word of wisdom designed to resist addictive drugs and fluids is associated with the Lord's opposition to secret combinations of evil men who would conspire to make vast fortunes by seducing the people to become victims of these habit-forming products. The Lord now begins itemizing the principal products that will be used by the secret combination of criminally inclined individuals to exploit the weaknesses of mankind. 
that inasmuch as any man drinketh wine or strong drink among you, behold, it is not good, neither meet in the sight of your father, only in assembling yourselves together to offer up your sacraments before him. And behold, this should be wine, yea, pure wine, of the grape of the vine of your own make. And again, strong drinks are not for the belly, but for the washing of your bodies. Now the Lord sets up a mandate against tobacco. And again, tobacco is not for the body, neither for the belly, and is not good for man, but is an herb for bruises and all sick cattle, to be used with judgment and skill. The Lord's counsel against tobacco did little to inhibit the use of this highly addictive weed until recent times when it became widely recognized that tobacco was the principal causes of emphysema and lung cancer. Nevertheless, wealthy tobacco companies were willing to pay out tens of millions of dollars in damages to victims of such diseases rather than abandon the manufacture of these deadly menaces to public health. High officials went before the United States Congress and swore under oath that they had no knowledge that tobacco was addictive and injurious to health. Of course, this was a deliberate lie. All of them should have been sent to prison for perjury. Next, the Lord raises a word of caution against what he calls hot drinks. The Lord said, And again, hot drinks are not for the body or belly. The most popular hot drinks have traditionally been tea and coffee, and it took two or three generations to minimize the consumption of these beverages among members of the church. It was only after individual prophets strongly urged the saints to recognize the serious injury to health associated with these beverages. They made obedience to the word of wisdom a prerequisite to temple attendance, and soon there began to be a conformity among the majority of the members of the church. In fact, the members themselves voted in general conference to make the word of wisdom an integral part of the gospel as a commandment, since it was obvious that the will of the Lord was not just a casual suggestion. And again, verily I say unto you, all wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof. All these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. For centuries it has been known that certain wholesome herbs were not only helpful, but provided remedies for certain kinds of illness. Today, more than ever before, there are thriving businesses that specialize in the growth and distribution of natural herbs for both preventive and remedial purposes. Scientists are also learning that extractions from many of these herbs are proving highly beneficial supplements. The generous consumption of fruits and vegetables has also become a strongly recommended means of prolonging life and improving daily health. Yea, Flesh also of beasts and of the fowls of the air. I, the Lord, have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. And it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine.
The Lord's counsel concerning the consumption of meat is also in harmony with the foremost experts in nutrition. All grain is ordained for the use of man and of beasts to be the staff of life, not only for man but for the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven and all wild animals that run or creep on the earth. And these hath God made for the use of man only in times of famine and excess of hunger. All grain is good for the food of man, as also the fruit of the vine, that which yieldeth fruit, whether in the ground or above the ground. Nevertheless, wheat for man, and corn for the ox, and oats for the horse, and rye for the fowls, and for swine, and for all beasts of the field, and barley for all useful animals, and for mild drinks, as also other grain. Notice that the Lord speaks of grain as a staff of life for mankind. The Lord realizes that in time of drought or famine, the people may be reduced to consuming wild animals to a great extent in order to survive. However, the exclusive dependence on meat as an emergency should be considered an emergency ration and not prolonged beyond absolute necessity. Now comes the Lord's promise to all those who honor the principles of the word of wisdom. He promises health in the navel, marrow in the bones, wisdom and great treasures of intellectual knowledge, even hidden treasures, the capacity to endure strenuous physical exertion so that they can walk long miles and not be weary or faint. And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones, and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. Finally the Lord pronounces the greatest blessing of all. He says, And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise, that the destroying angels shall pass by them, as the children of Israel, and not slay them. Amen. Section 90, Introduction During the inclement weather of the winter of 1832 and 33, Joseph was busily engaged in the revision of the New Testament. After receiving the prophecy on wars in December 1832, and the word of wisdom shortly thereafter. He continued his work until the next major revelation in March, 1833. During that interval, he introduced to the brethren the ordinance of the washing of feet, and corresponded frequently with the leaders in Missouri, who were rapidly moving toward a major crisis insofar as Jackson County was concerned. It was in these unsettled circumstances that the Quorum of the First Presidency was organized. The Lord knew the Church or restored Kingdom of God was now entering a very critical stage in its development. During the next two years, the Lord would appoint relatively new, inexperienced converts of the Church to some of the highest offices in the Kingdom. This would include the First Presidency, a Council of Twelve Apostles, a Council of Seventy, Stake High Councils, Presidents of Stakes, and Bishops. 
Men would assume these high offices and be subject to severe temptations. Satan would lay snares in their paths with elements of pride, high-mindedness, arrogance, and unrighteous dominion over those they had been ordained to serve. Of course, the Lord knew that ordination to high offices with noble titles and tremendous authority would be a supreme test which many of them would fail. Some would stumble through their years of service and suffer numerous reprimands or even humiliating demotions before they gained a state of humble devotion required by the Lord for officers at every level of the kingdom. Jesus knew that in the next few years he would lose his brilliant and formerly faithful three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. None of them would ever deny their testimonies of Moroni and the gold plates, but they would become offended by minor matters and go braying off into the wilderness and away from the church. Two would barely creep back into the church in time to plead for rebaptism before they died. Nevertheless, the early history of the church demonstrates a remarkable degree of love and patience by the Lord. In every instance of apostasy by a church leader, the Lord treated him as a permanent fixture in the kingdom right up to the time he fell. Furthermore, if he deeply repented and pleaded for the Lord to forgive him, the Savior usually gave him at least one more chance, but rarely in any kind of high calling. With all of this in mind, let us now consider the revelation which set up the first presidency of the church. So we come now to section 90. Thus saith the Lord, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee, according to thy petition. For thy prayers and the prayers of thy brethren have come up into my ears. This revelation is directed to the prophet Joseph Smith, who is passing through a wide variety of trials and pleading with the Lord for a forgiveness of occasional weaknesses he had recognized in himself. In response to these prayers, the Lord says, quote, Thy sins are forgiven. Unquote. Therefore thou art blessed from henceforth that bear the keys of the kingdom given unto you, which kingdom is coming forth for the last time? The Lord reminded Joseph that he could scarcely have any blessing greater than the privilege of holding the keys of the kingdom, which is now unfolding upon the earth for the last time. Verily I say unto you, the keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you, while thou art in the world, neither in the world to come. Since Joseph was constantly being accused especially by high-minded disciples in Missouri, that he was slipping from his high calling as a prophet, it was heartwarming to hear the Lord say that he will not lose the keys of the kingdom either in this life or in the world to come. Nevertheless, through you shall the oracles be given to another, yea, even unto the church. The Lord also affirms what he had said earlier, that new revelations for the church will always come through Joseph who holds the keys. And all they who receive the oracles of God, let them beware how they hold them, lest they are accounted as a light thing, and are brought under condemnation thereby, and stumble and fall when the storms descend, and the winds blow, 
and the rains descend and beat upon their house. It is such a tremendous responsibility to receive oracles or revelations on behalf of the entire church. The Lord warns that some of these revelations may be taken lightly by those in high places, which will cause them to lose the spirit and apostatize. And again, verily I say unto thy brethren, Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams, their sins are forgiven them also and they are accounted as equal with thee in holding the keys of this last kingdom. What a glorious announcement this verse turns out to be. Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams are assured that they are as little children whose sins have been forgiven, and they are equal with Joseph in holding the keys of the kingdom. In other words, the three of them constitute the first presidency over the whole church as also through your administration the keys of the school of the prophets, which I have commanded to be organized, that thereby they may be perfected in their ministry for the salvation of Zion, and of the nations of Israel, and of the Gentiles, as many as will believe. The Lord then refers to the temple which must be built according to the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Furthermore, that same revelation says they are to set up a school of the prophets where the elders of the church can be trained in their callings. That through your administration they may receive the word, and through their administration the word may go forth unto the ends of the earth, unto the Gentiles first, and then, behold, and lo, they shall turn unto the Jews. It is plain that the Lord wants a band of missionaries to go forth into the world who are trained in the gospel and know the treasures of sacred mysteries which have been revealed again upon the earth. We will learn later that a, quote, mystery, unquote, is something God has clearly revealed, but which casual readers of the scriptures fail to comprehend. These great truths are to be explained to the Gentiles first, and then eventually to the Jews. And then cometh the day when the arm of the Lord shall be revealed in power, in convincing the nations, the heathen nations, the house of Joseph, of the gospel of their salvation. At first the gospel message will go forth to test the faith of the saints, but in due time the arm of the Lord will be revealed with such manifestations of power and glory that faith will grow into an abundance of knowledge concerning the Lord and his manifestations of power. It will amaze and convert the honest of heart among the Gentiles, the heathens, and the house of Joseph. For it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language through those who are ordained unto this power by the administration of the Comforter shed forth upon them for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here is a promise that the people of all nations will have the gospel taught to them in their own language, so that they will not need interpreters to tell them what the missionaries are trying to say. Furthermore, the gospel message will be confirmed by the Holy Ghost in the hearts of those who hear it. And now verily I say unto you, I give unto you a commandment, that you continue in the ministry and presidency. And when you have finished the translation of the prophets, you shall from thenceforth preside over the affairs of the church and the school, 
The Lord tells these three men that they are not being released from their previous callings. They are to diligently continue the revision of the New Testament. When they have finished it, they must devote their energies to supervising and promoting the welfare of the whole church and give careful attention to the school of the prophets. And from time to time, as shall be manifested by the Comforter, receive revelations to unfold the mysteries of the kingdom, and set in order the churches, and study and learn, and become acquainted with all good books, and with languages, tongues, and people. Presiding over the church involves receiving revelations from time to time, illuminating their minds concerning points of doctrine in the scriptures, which are as yet mysteries to the members of the kingdom. They are also to develop order in the church and cultivate learning from the scriptures and other good books so that the leaders in the kingdom are well informed in the language and cultures of people worldwide. And this shall be your business and mission in all your lives, to preside in council and set in order all the affairs of this church and kingdom. The members of the First Presidency are to continue in their offices for the rest of their lives and make it their business to build up the church as it spreads throughout the world. Be not ashamed, neither confounded, but be admonished in all your high-mindedness and pride, for it bringeth a snare upon your souls. The First Presidency is not to allow their enemies to intimidate or confound them. At the same time, they are to beware of high-mindedness and pride that could prove to be a snare and result in their downfall. Set in order your houses. Keep slothfulness and uncleanness far from you. The Lord not only requires great leadership from the First Presidency, but He expects their family life to be exemplary. There must be no lazy slothfulness or uncleanliness or sloppy management of their homes. Now verily I say unto you, let there be a place provided as soon as it is possible for the family of thy counselor and scribe, even Frederick G. Williams. In order that Frederick G. Williams can serve the prophet as confidant, scribe, and counselor, it is essential that he be provided a dwelling place. And let mine aged servant Joseph Smith Sr., Continue with his family upon the place where he now lives, and let it not be sold until the mouth of the Lord shall name. At that time the father of Joseph Smith was living in a home which was adequate for the time being, and the Lord said Joseph's father and family members were to remain in these facilities until the Lord himself indicated otherwise. And let my counselor even Sidney Rigdon remain where he now resides, until the mouth of the Lord shall name. The Lord also feels that the residence of Sidney Rigdon is adequate and should not be sold until the Lord indicates a change. It is interesting that several of the leaders are living in houses which have apparently been purchased by the bishop. They are therefore living in consecrated property subject to the disposition of the church. And let the bishop search diligently to obtain an agent and let him be a man who has got riches in store, a man of God and of strong faith. Now the Lord has an instruction for Newell K. Whitney, the bishop in Kirtland. 
he must search out a very reliable agent who can handle the finances and properties of the church with complete trust and due diligence, that thereby he may be enabled to discharge every debt, that the storehouse of the Lord may not be brought into disrepute before the eyes of the people. The goal of the bishop and his agent will be to pay off every debt and to stock the storehouse under the law of consecration. This means the storehouse will be stocked with money and goods so that the church will never be in disrepute because it is inadequate to assist the poor and help the saints begin to prosper. As it turned out, this never became possible. The task of building the temple and sustaining the storehouse was always being disrupted by apostasy or the failure of new converts to keep their covenants. Search diligently. Pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good, if ye walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted, one with another. The Lord knew what it would take to make the law of consecration survive. They must be a praying people, walking uprightly before the Lord, and keeping their covenants faithfully. Let your families be small especially mine aged servant Joseph Smith's senior, as pertaining to those who do not belong to your families. The Lord said each set of parents must be careful about overwhelming themselves with dependence. Older children must be willing to work, and non-relatives must be able to carry their own weight without being a burden to those who took them in out of sympathy and expecting them to stay only a short time that those things that are provided for you to bring to pass my work be not taken from you and given to those that are not worthy, and thereby you be hindered in accomplishing those things which I have commanded you. The whole gospel plan was set up to help the people become independent and free to push forward the Lord's work. Frugality and good management are essential or the saints will lose their property, and it will fall into the hands of those who do not deserve it. This would prevent the saints from accomplishing the things God has commanded them to achieve. And again, verily I say unto you, it is my will that my handmaid Vienna Jacques should receive money to bear her expenses, and go up unto the land of Zion, and the residue of the money may be consecrated unto me and she be rewarded in mine own due time. Verily I say unto you, that it is meet in mine eyes that she should go up unto the land of Zion, and receive an inheritance from the hand of the bishop, that she may settle down in peace, inasmuch as she is faithful, and not be idle in her days from thenceforth. One good sister, Vienna Jacks, had apparently consecrated a considerable sum to the church, the Lord wanted the bishop to give her enough money to get to Zion and provide an inheritance for her there. The remainder of her financial consecration should be left with the bishop in Kirtland to help with the Lord's work in that vicinity. And behold, verily I say unto you, that ye shall write this commandment, and say unto your brethren in Zion, in love greeting, that I have called you also to preside over Zion in mine own due time. Therefore let them cease wearying me concerning this matter. 
The saints in Missouri are told that in due time, the First Presidency will govern the affairs of Zion as well as those in Kirtland. However, for the present, they should manage the best they can and stop troubling the Lord about it. Behold, I say unto you that your brethren in Zion begin to repent, and the angels rejoice over them. Nevertheless, I am not well pleased with many things, and I am not well pleased with my servant William E. McClellan, neither with my servant Sidney Gilbert, and the bishop also, and others have many things to repent of. But verily I say unto you that I, the Lord, will contend with Zion, and plead with her strong ones, and chasten her until she overcomes and is clean before me. For she shall not be removed out of her place. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Amen. The Lord is not at all pleased with a lot of things that are occurring in Zion. Some have begun to repent, but by and large there are many things that require improvement. For example, William E. McClellan, Sidney Gilbert, and Bishop Edward Partridge are among those in Zion who have many things of which they must repent. But in spite of what is happening, the Lord said Zion will never be removed as the designated place for the New Jerusalem. Now a brief historical note. Following this revelation, Joseph Smith laid his hands upon the head of Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams and ordained these two brethren to take part with Joseph Smith in administering the keys of the kingdom. Therefore, as of March the 8th, 1833, the setting up of the First Presidency constituted another major step in the organizing of the Church. Section 91, Introduction The day after the First Presidency was established, Joseph Smith came to the Apocrypha in the revision of the Scriptures. He did not know whether it was part of the Bible or whether it was some sort of hidden appendix which was merely an adjunct to the Bible. In fact, the word apocrypha means, quote, hidden, unquote. Since Joseph did not know how to proceed from this point forward, he approached the Lord in prayer. Therefore, on March the 9th, 1833, Joseph received the following revelation. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you concerning the apocrypha, there are many things contained therein that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. This first verse gives the Lord's own evaluation of these books, which were known among early church scholars as not being part of the canon of Scripture, but worthy of study. The Lord verifies that in these books there are many things that are true. There are many things contained therein that are not true, which are interpolations by the hands of men. But now comes the warning that there are some elements in these books that the Lord declares to be untrue. Verily I say unto you that it is not needful that the Apocrypha should be translated. The Lord does not consider these books as a trustworthy part of the standard works of the Latter-day Church. He therefore instructs Joseph not to translate them, lest they become intermingled with the revelations directly from the Lord. Therefore, whoso readeth it, let him understand, for the Spirit manifesteth truth. 
In this verse, the Lord puts the responsibility upon the student of the Apocrypha to distinguish the true from the false. And whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom. Of course, it goes without saying that any person who is led by the Spirit of the Lord will find considerable enlightenment with certain parts of the Apocrypha. And whoso receiveth not by the Spirit cannot be benefited. Therefore it is not needful that it should be translated. Amen. But without the gift of revelation through the Spirit of the Lord, a person could come to a number of conclusions from these books which would be false. For this reason, the Latter-day Church has never published the Apocrypha with the four standard works. Section 92, Introduction This revelation on March the 15th, 1833, relates to an earlier revelation, that is Section 82, given on April 26th, 1832. In that revelation, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, Sidney Rigdon, Newell K. Whitney, Edward Partridge, and a few others were united in their temporal affairs. This was the law of consecration, in which the leaders of the church combined together in a very special way. Now, in this present revelation, the Lord wants this exclusive group to be enlarged sufficiently to admit one more member. Verily thus saith the Lord, I give unto the united order organized agreeable to the commandment previously given, a revelation and commandment concerning my servant Frederick G. Williams, that ye shall receive him into the order. What I say unto one, I say unto all. Here the Lord says the law of consecration is designated as, quote, the united order, unquote. He says it has been organized according to a previous revelation, of course, and that would be section 82, verse 11. And the Lord says he now wants Frederick G. Williams of the First Presidency to be made a member of this order. And again I say unto you, my servant Frederick G. Williams, you shall be a lively member in this order. And inasmuch as you are faithful in keeping all former commandments, you shall be blessed forever. Amen. The Lord then addresses Frederick G. Williams in this verse and promises him that if he will keep the commandments of God and be an active member of the United Order, he will be blessed forever. If you liked this podcast and would like access to other materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find them online at skousenlibrary.com.